are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings, happy Friday. Welcome to the Steve Day Show free podcast, powered, which means underwritten, by our benevolent overlords here at CRTV who make this free for you each and every day on iHeart, iTunes, and Stitcher. Thank you for subscribing. If you are a subscriber, please write us a review. That's good if you like us. If you don't, just don't say anything. Don't lie, but just say nothing at all. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do, and then share this link with everyone you know to help us get the word out about what we're doing each and every day here for CRTV. And we love to know what you think about what we think. That's what Feedback Friday is all about. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. And we have a packed house here in studio because we just wrapped up the Dace Group for CRTV, which you can watch at CRTV.com if you use promo code Dace to become a subscriber today. And you won't just get the Dace Group, but all of our other shows and all of the shows that are produced here each day for CRTV, including including the great one, Mark Levin, and uh, the new one, uh, and Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty fame. Let's give our audience a little tease of what's what's coming up on the Dace Group. Aaron, I'll start with you. What should they be looking for today? Steve Dace reveals his sick obsession. That's good. It is so good. True, too. It's true clickbait. You're right. Mm -hmm. You're right. Todd rips out his earpiece and threatens to storm off the set. Yeah, which sick obsession? There were several. (laughs) That's that's Kim's clickbait. Todd, what's yours? Uh, well, it's, everything's a five, I think. It's, Steve, you talked about that maybe just last week about when we rank one through ten of this Trump presidency. It's just so hard to know how bad anything is any given moment. And when you get into the specifics of uh, the um, Manafort indictment and the Mueller investigation. Uh, not everybody agrees with me that, that it's a five, but but the, the level of gray area that is just everywhere and everything involving this presidency, we just can we continue that theme and trying to sort out where exactly is this whole Mueller thing going. So if you want to watch today, CRTV.com, promo code DACE, last name again, D-E-A-C-E. We'll get you a discounted subscription here to CRTV. That uh, gives you access to all of our channels and all of our shows and all of our archives. And we have monthly subscription options, too. We have a free trial. So if you try us during that free trial period and you're like, this isn't for me, cancel before it's over and you won't be charged anything. CRTV.com, promo code DACE. Aren't you guys ready for some Feedback Friday? You bet. love some feedback. All right, let's begin. Chris Mancini writes, great show yesterday. But I wanted to mention that there are actually several hadiths within Islam, not just one that you were referencing yesterday. There is some conflict on just how many hadiths exist, but there are multiple. If we read the major ones that you were alluding to, that is certainly helpful. Chris is correct about this. Islam as a religion, and I'm not, I'm analyzing it now structurally, not its claims of validity, okay? Just analyzing it structurally from an argumentation standpoint. Islam is trying to pin jello to a door, and here's why. 
from the very beginning, Muhammad could not read or write. He was illiterate. And so we have, we have originals of, of Paul's letters within, or of gospels within decades. Uh, even the most liberal, skeptical scholars of textual criticism will tell you we have, we have, we have, we have texts of what we know today as the Bible within 50 years of Jesus's purported resurrection. And there's evidence to suggest we have it within 10 years. No such textual criticism exists within Islam because it couldn't stand up to it. Because we have someone here who could not read or write in Muhammad. Quran means recite. All right, so if you know the story behind the, the, behind the, the origin of Islam, Muhammad has, says an angel comes to him that wants to give him a revelation. Could be Satan himself. Yes. Claims it's the angel Gabriel. Although it's interesting what he describes as, as what came upon him. You know, when, when people come upon the angel of the Lord in the Bible, they feel reverence. They feel the need to, to bow, to show humility. He almost describes what sounds like a possession. In his own words, when you read him. He goes back to his wife, who's much older than him. He's essentially a kept man. This is history. I'm just giving you the history. Like I did the Reformation the other day. This is just the history. Just the facts. His wife is much older than him. A a well-to-do widow. He goes back to his wife. She has a friend of, of hers that is considered religious. This friend of hers says she's a Christian, and she says, this sounds almost like Moses at the burning bush. Go back to that cave. You might be having a real encounter here. So he goes back a second time, and this is where um, the Quran's initial message of Allah is revealed to him. The reason why, it, and I know some people want to say, well, it's, it's, it's written in a Bedouin fashion, and... and their writing style is not as linear as the West where there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's why it sounds random. There's some truth to that. It's also because the guy couldn't was illiterate. Often what you're reading are accounts of what he supposedly said many, many years after he said them. And so when you read the book, it comes. there's a literary device that we call in writing stream of consciousness. And it's essentially... A fancy term for venting. And that's a lot of what the Quran is. It is a difficult read, not because the subject matter is tawdry, and there is some tawdry subject matter, but there's tawdry subject matter in the Bible, if we're going to be honest about it. It's because structurally, it's a difficult read, because you're not always sure what time period are we in. Is he, is he having a, a good hair day or a bad hair day? Are we, in, are we in kill all the Jews or love everybody? We don't know. In fact, it's very Trumpian, to be honest with you. That's really what it is. It, it's like it's like if, if it's like if the Quran is like Trump's is like Trump's Twitter account. You don't really know, and half the time, what the context is. Sometimes he whines, and you're like, "You're Muhammad. Do something about it," like you do with Trump. It's it's a very it's a very Trumpy. It's like reading Trump's Twitter account. And sometimes he's just idly venting about things that are random. He just, something stuck in his craw and it has nothing to do with what this moment is really about. It's a tough read for that reason. 
And so it's also very hotly debated because we don't really know what much of the context is. Because he left no heir. He spent the last 20 years of his life fighting wars. He essentially was a conquering warlord on behalf of Islam. He tried to peacefully get the people of Mecca to commit and convert. They would not. So he left, sought sanctuary. Some of the legends say that the sanctuary he was given was a local warlord from who was a Christian. He used that time to mount an army, and then he went back to Mecca and invaded it, and that's essentially the pattern he took the next 20 years. He left no, no heir. And so right away, two camps developed on who was the rightful heir of Muhammad's kingdom. We know those camps today as Sunnis and Shias. This is where it comes from. More than a theological debate, what they're really having is an, is an ecclesiastical debate. Who's the authority here? Who's, and if, if you believe this line of succession is the, similar to the conversation we had about the Reformation the other day, Todd. If, you're, if you believe in sola scriptura, then you're to reject veneration of Mary and priests don't, what Mar, and priests don't marry and things of that nature. If you believe the truth, the, the, the church is the clarifier of what the scriptures mean, then you will accept those doctrines. And it, that's, in, in, a, in a similar way, that's what goes on with Sunnis and Shias. If you believe this is the line of secession, then you believe in the Sunni theologies. If you believe the others is the, is the line of secession, you believe in the Shia theologies. And in many cases, those theologies have been heavily infiltrated and watered down by tyrants that use uh, the religious language to get power in a culture and then are not, like Saddam Hussein, for example, who was a, who was a Sunni, but really wasn't interested in, in Sunni Islam on any level. He was a moral degenerate. He was interested in grinding his own axes and getting off whenever he wanted and stealing from you when, when you didn't give him what he wanted. His primary agitation with Shias wasn't theological conviction. It was political uh, uh, political, uh, political opposition. This makes pinning down what Islam really is and what it stands for exceedingly difficult. We don't have scholars testing the textual validity of the Quran within, the, within Islam. If you do that, that's, that means you lack faith. We don't have people digging archaeologically the history of the Quran. Critical thinking is, if you ask somebody, why is Islam true? They'll say, because the Quran says so. Well, then if you ask them, why is the Quran true? Well, because uh, it says so. It's a, it's a religion of circular logic, guys. There's no test the spirits. And so over a course of time, there have been these compendiums called hadiths that have sort of clarified things for that era of, you know, what is our current liturgy? What's our current ecclesiology? What do we do here? It is a moving target. And I hate to say this, okay? But the only consistent strain of Islam that has existed from time, from its inception till now, is the warrior strain. Exactly. That's the problem here. There have been peaceful strains that have existed in and of themselves throughout its history, but they never sustain themselves. The only sustainable strain of Islam from the very beginning is the warrior one. I wish that weren't true. History says differently. 
This is why it's virtually impossible to have a reformation of Islam. Even Todd will tell you as a Catholic, the reformation given the state of the church, even though he doesn't agree with much of the theology, the theological challenges to the church's authority that came out of it, you would say given the where crime families like the Borgias are overtaking the papacy, you would say that at least from a from a mechanical tune-up standpoint, it was a necessary device in resetting the course of the church at that time. You would say that historically given where the church was, right? In some fashion, and Erasmus agrees, yes. Yes. Now, you don't agree necessarily with the theological challenges that sprouted in, in, in the post-era of the Reformation itself, but as, in terms of what the state of the church was, it was probably necessary to do a cleanup in aisle nine. Yes. That won't happen in Islam. Because this idea of introspection, of critical thinking. The cleanup is more killing, Steve. Yes, that's, that's the only cleanup possible. That's right. That's, that's, scholars are not going to get together. And, and be fair to Muslims, we as Christians struggled with this for the, the immediate centuries following the Reformation. We struggle with this very dynamic ourselves. Bloody Mary, why'd she get that name? Who are the Huguenots? Well, they were Catholic dissidents that had to escape and flee persecution, if not murder, from Protestant kings, just like the Puritans had to escape the King of England in their time. So to be fair, as I'm, as I want to be as historically fair as possible. I don't think, I think history is good enough on its own. We don't have to prime the pump. We don't have to grease the skids. The truth's on our side. Truth's our friend. Christ, to be fair to Islam, Christianity in the post-Reformation world struggled mightily with what they have struggled with for 1,400 years. But, but the difference here is that's a period of time within Christendom that we call a schism. Schism is the default setting of Islam. So even if we left them alone, even if we did what, can, you know, the foreign policy somebody like you, Kim, advocates... If we left them alone, they might leave us alone. You know who they wouldn't leave alone? One another. They will slaughter one another. Several years ago, early in my radio career, I did a series of debates on my local show with an Islamic apologist whose mother was Greek and whose father was Egyptian. So he was educated in the West. And he was a physician. And he was a speaker at college campuses around the country in a post-9-11 world trying to essentially push back against what he was concerned about, Muslim bigotry. And during one of these, we, I think we did two or three radio shows together, and during one of them I asked him this question. Because he tried to make the argument, you know, that freedom, Islam's about freedom. It inspired some of our own founders. The first constitutional republic was a country within the history of it. And I just let him go on and on and on. And I just, when he got done, I just asked him a simple question. Where in the world right now in a culture dominated by Islam? Because challenging people on the history, most people are ignorant of history. And most people just like, most people think because they watched a History Channel documentary, they know the history. And if they, you give them a view of history they don't like, they just say, well, history is written by the winners, it's biased. Like we do now with news headlines, we don't like, that's all fake news. Facts we don't, there's fake news and then there's the facts we don't like we call fake news, right? Okay. Like fake news is Think Progress and a person at Think Progress and a guy at the Wall Street Journal attacking Trump yesterday for not issuing, for not demanding the execution of the Vegas shooter when he's been dead for two weeks, guys. Okay? He died, minute, killed himself minutes after. That's, that's fake news, literally. 
A lot of times, though, what we call fake news on our Facebook walls are the facts that don't fit our narrative. We call those things fake news. So I didn't want to get into the historical weeds with them because that's an unwinnable argument. So to me, let's just test your hypothesis. Question I asked him was, name me one country in the world today dominated by Islam where the people are living like you just described Islam wants them to live. Just give me one. He could not give me one. I asked him, why do you think that is? He blamed it on colonization. That the people within Islam are constantly being conquered by an outside authority. He is correct about that. Do you know who the outside authority that was conquering the people of Islam for about a millennia were? They were called the Turks, the Moors. We in our modern parlance, we call them the Ottoman Empire. Who were they? Muslims, guys. Muslims. They will con- so we can build a wall. I'm all for that. Come up with our own energy source. I'm all, I'm all for dive. I'm all for telling the Middle East leave Israel alone, and we don't give a rip. We don't care. We got our own problems. I'm all for that. But understand, they may that may get them to leave us alone. They will not leave each other alone. They will they will slaughter each other. Saudis will turn on the Iranians. The Iranians will turn on the Saudis, and off we go. That's the history of Islam. The only consistent, we have times, periods within Judaism you're not proud of. We have time periods within Christianity you're not proud of. But, but they are moments within time of a broader narrative that you are proud of, which is why that, those are legacies worthy of conserving. Sadly, the opposite is true of Islam. The moments in time you're proud of are the snapshots. The consistencies are the warrior strain. So I wanted to reset that history. Chris, thank you for your email. Anybody, any comments on that before I move on? (laughs) I think that was pretty thorough. Yeah, Yeah. that was awesome. Then we'll move on. This is from Stephen, who says, regarding the NFL protest, I had to get into the Air Force. I had to go to the Air Force for the GI Bill because we couldn't afford college when I was a kid. I wasn't a Friday night hero with colleges recruiting me to come to their school. All expenses paid. I didn't shake hands, lined with $100 bills in the locker room by rich alumni. I don't recall being interviewed on the news or idolized by the students. I've never punched my wife, drawn blood, disciplining my children, a little later in Peterson reference there, nor been pulled over for a DUI, yet I have to watch people like Chris Carter who and others who have done those things blabber on television about how bad America is. Steve, I make about what you do in a good year. Take my family of four to a Cowboys game. It's over $400 just for the tickets in the upper deck. Every year I have to hear about so-and-so running back gets Rolexes, flat-screen TVs, or something on my bucket list from their offensive linemen, or for their offensive linemen. Again, who's on the side of inequality here? Again, I write all this to say, these protests are yet another reason for a guy like me to get their good fill of football on a Saturday and put the remote away come Sunday. Drop the mic. That's the mic drop right there. I'm not even going to add anything to that or ask you guys to because I think he just summed up one of the major reasons why ratings are down 25%. He did. Well done, Stephen. James Robinson says, this is, I got, I'm I'm still getting tons of email about our Reformation conversation. Great. But we're now in the phase of, you guys didn't do a good enough job of attacking each other and thoroughly Uh, explaining your points. And I'm just going to say to all of you sending us those notes, we, we love this debate, but... There's a certain cap on where this debate can go on a show like this because of who we are. We're not experts. 
We're just laymen with, we're informed laymen with convictions, but we're not experts. Two, we're dealing with an audience that by and large is not as theologically um, discipled as previous generations of Americans are. So there's a broadcasting concept too where are we getting into weeds people don't resonate with and so they don't want to listen because yeah, we, we have to draw listeners. That's our number one function here, okay? So there's that part of it, all right? So if you're of that bent, then this is probably where Todd tells you to go listen to Catholic Answers and I tell you to go listen to White Horse Inn or R.C. Sproul or Ravi Zacharias because it's time now to go and with the people that are like really good at this, okay? And, and this is their life's work and they're used to communicating that because I, I think for where we are and where the audience is, we probably took that topic as far as it should probably go in this form unless anybody disagrees with that. No, you're right. No. But... I did get one that I wanted to pass along because I thought it was an interesting analogy and I want to get your take on it. James Robinson says, as an accountant, I find it useful to state things in the form of mathematical equations. Therefore, I would say that my understanding of the Catholic view looks like this. Faith plus grace plus works equals salvation. He says, but I believe the biblical view that Protestants hold to is expressed as grace plus faith equals salvation plus works. I believe that main sticking point here is the role of works in the equation. Are works meritorious or are they the or are they only evidence of salvation? In other words, when James said faith without works is dead, did he mean that works must be added to faith to merit salvation or that faith that is a saving faith will be accompanied by works? I think Protestants believe in the latter response being the proper one. You want to respond to that? I think that's a fair characterization of the two sides first of all or not. I don't, what I'm going to say, it's not in any way a pejorative, but it, it, it's just, it's too smart by half. We, Catholics do not believe that we can earn our way to heaven, full stop. So if that's, I, 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 you, I got lost in all the plus, equal, you know, it's, it's not, stop, it's a, this is a relationship. Your love of Jesus for those you love we, in, think of the relation, love relationships you know, children, parents, uh, siblings, husband, wife. It, you, you do good because of that love. It, it's a natural emanation. The creation of the universe is a work of God. And it is a natural emanation of his state of being. Love. This, this isn't complicated to me. I, I, just keep it simple. All right, works happen because of faith. It is evidence of faith. By your fruits, you will know them. So I, I would say put the math down. See, I, I, I don't think, Kim, you tell me what you think. I don't think there's a Protestant listening right now that disagrees with anything he just said. Absolutely. But, but from our side of the him. street, when, when we hear it's not faith alone that justifies us, because we come to the conclusion it's faith alone that justifies us because of what you just said. Because of what you just said, we believe faith alone justifies us because I won't bear that fruit without a saving faith. This is where I think the Protestant conception that Catholics believe we, that, you guys, that you essentially have to engineer the doing of good works to demonstrate that you are, that you are serious about maintaining, working out your fear your no. faith and fear and salvation. 
you do you get what I'm trying to say? Well, I do, but the instant you this that now it becomes more complex because the instant Hold on a second, you, before I let you finish, do you think that's a fair characterization of where our side of this debate comes from typically? And things I think they would be completely yes, okay. they would be completely okay. surprised by what I, Todd said. While there's somebody else here, um, and and Aaron, you can chime in on this too. I don't want to like I'm speaking no. uh, here. Yes, I'm going. I'm going to speak for uh, the no, last 500 years of Protestantism. That's, no, that's the main concern okay. that I've had. Okay, you just stated. All right, so now that we've stipulated that, I'm not anointing myself the Protestant Pope on justification, but I'm echoing a sentiment. Now, Todd, go ahead well, and respond. Did, I, like I said, I did he use the term justification at all in no. his... No. See, that's no. where no. You, things change. When you enter that... Listen, I believe, as a Catholic, that I am, in this moment, if I come to any given moment, that I am justified by faith. But here's once saved, always saved, which I know we have various views on that at this very table catholics do not believe once saved always saved and in the lord's prayer forgive forgive us our trespasses as we forgive give us our daily bread this is a daily process so after justification becomes sanctification being made holy that is an ongoing process so i i it catholics agree wholeheartedly in the notion that a faith in any given moment is justifies but we just don't believe that that is full stop. And I understand why Protestants who do believe once saved, always saved. I, so I from, understand from your perspective why, as a Catholic, you think the argument is really over once saved, always saved. What, that's because where if, you need to go. Because if that's, if that's your theology, then it makes perfect sense that I can't produce good exactly. works without a saving faith that someone bestowed upon me exactly. that I did nothing to earn and can't be taken away from me exactly. anyway. Then it makes sense. So at some point, we probably need to have a debate about once saved, always saved at some point in the future. Yeah. Is that what you're basically Book saying? Book yeah, it. I, okay. think, I think Do that's it. you guys it. want to add anything to that at all? I'm looking forward to that not, debate. Not all Protestant, mo- the vast majority of Protestant denominations do teach what Calvin called the perseverance of the saints. There are some that don't. Many, most of the time, it's Pentecostal forms of Pentecostal denominations. But the vast majority of Protestant denominations do teach that, do they not? They do. Okay, Aaron, you want any issue? No, this is fascinating. Okay, because uh, that's the major sticking point that I've had with uh, with uh, Catholic version of uh, of theology. And I could turn that around too, like you did on for Protestants, and say if I'm Catholic and I don't believe that once I'm saved, once I'm converted, I'm always converted then I can see where the notion of that makes perfect sense, this idea that I constantly need to be striving to show the fruits of, of, of the seriousness of my side of this equation, right? Yeah. And it makes sense. Yeah. So we're really having a debate about the sealing of a covenant. Is it, is it an open covenant or is it a sealed one when I'm converted? That's really what we're debating. Yes. I think so. Okay. At some point in the future, maybe we'll have that conversation. Um, this is from... Scott. Scott says, your timeline of the Mueller special counsel you gave the other day was completely accurate, but your reason for its appointment is not. Quoting from the actual order, the special counsel is authorized to conduct the investigation confirmed by then FBI Director James B. Comey in testimony before the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence on March 20th, 2017, including any links and or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the campaign of President Trump and any matters that arose or may arise directly from the investigation and any other matters within the scope 
of said investigation, end quote. If I thought you were a fraud and or interest, not interested in the truth, I wouldn't even bother informing you of this inaccuracy. I'd probably not even bother with the minor mis- inaccuracy, but your mischaracterization of the Mueller probe uh, of Mueller's appointment is quite significant, and I look forward to hearing your correction. Um, so let me piece this together. Let me just do this from the outset, okay? Because we could get in the weeds here. For the most part, Scott, you are correct, all right? What I should have said is what sparked the Mueller probe was not Russian collusion. But what instigated it was the notion that Trump was attempting to interfere with Comey's investigation of it, and that's why he fired him and then gone into the chain of events, If I had just simply said that, I would have been right. So on that point, you are correct. A correction is due, which I have just made. What I will say, though, this is why I'm this is why in general I'm against appointing special counsels. Any matters that arose or may arise directly from the investigation, that can literally just mean anything. That can literally just mean anything. And so when the people that are criticizing Comey on the right or I'm sorry, Mueller on the right, by saying, well, he didn't come up with anything that linked collusion. Then I would take Scott's argument and put it right back at them. Because it says right here in the order, his mandate goes beyond Russian collusion. Any matters, any matters? It literally says any matters, any matters that arose or may arise directly from that investigation. So some of you wondering, how is he charging Montefort for stuff that he did before he joined the Trump campaign when the Mueller thing is about Russian collusion? It's about everything. And it says it's right in the charter. Yes, son, you may go to the toy aisle and pick out one toy under $5. No, Dad, I want to go to the toy aisle and pick out any matters that may arise. Yes. Yeah. So, but but I wanted to make that point after... I know made the correction Scott asked for because I don't want to make it look like I was, you know, obfuscating because that's a separate point. Um, but Scott, you are correct. I should have been more precise in my language and pointed out that the timing and chain of events, the Mueller probe was not instigated in response to Russian collusion. It was instigated in response to Trump's actions in firing James Comey, who was investigating the Russian collusion. But so thank you for that. I note is made. William writes, so I had a woman in my public speaking class who did a persuasive speech on cultural appropriation as it relates to Native American spirituality and the dressing up as a Native American for Halloween. I honestly feel like this is getting taken a little too far at times. But what do you guys think in regards to Native American spirituality and cultural appropriation? Is cultural appropriation always wrong no is it always right no to me I think we have to look at what's the motivation here I totally understand Native Americans being offended by the old logo of the Cleveland Indians for example I get that I even get being offended by the name Redskins. The problem we have, though, is which, in this case, which Native American voices speak for Native Americans? 
Because Daniel Snyder, the owner of the Washington Redskins, when that whole thing was going on a few years ago, lined up all kinds of Native American tribes that liked seeing a Native American as the logo of the NFL team in Washington, D.C. So it's, it's, not, it, it's, it's not uniform. Guess what the mascot of it is of a lot of Native American high schools? Redskins. Hmm. Well, that just goes to show you. Let me tell you what happened when I was a kid in Michigan that goes beyond the pale here. Of, of, and this is where, where you, when you go here is when you lose your argument. When you may have a sensitivity argument in certain cases, when you go this far in a general point, though, you lose your point as a whole. When I was growing up, Eastern Michigan University's sports teams were called the Hurons. Okay. Based on the Huron tribe. Mm-hmm. Okay, some of the one of the original Native American tribes in Michigan, very similar to Florida State University's teams are called the what? Seminoles. Seminoles, inspired by the local Native American tribe, there, Chief Osceola, etc. Okay. This was my senior year in high school. Eastern Michigan actually had a good NCAA bas- a good college basketball team. They went to the NCAA tournament, and Eastern Michigan's usually not good at sports that matter in general. So this was big news at the time. This was also the early 90s, the very dawn beginning of the advent of political correctness. And mostly white people on campus in the faculty and administration said, we have to change this name, it's offensive. And that's why, that's why if you're younger, like Aaron, you've only known Eastern Michigan University as the Eagles. The problem is, representatives of the Huron tribe, they're locally, went to the Michigan Board of Regents and said, we, we like this, actually. You're not making fun of us like the Cleveland Indians logo where you're essentially got, you know, a cartoonish-looking Indian guy. I mean, you guys, those are the, the green. Those, are our tri- those were the, some of the tribal colors back in our tribal days. We, we kind of like the recognition. Plus, you guys let us come to the games when we want. I mean, we like it. We're not offended. Who, who is a better determiner of what offends the Huron tribe and the Huron tribe. Uh, progressives in academia. Well, yep, apparently, that, and that was their answer, and they changed the name anyway. Now, at Florida State University, they have that relationship with the Seminole tribe there locally, right? I mean, they can, the Seminole tribe there locally consults on Chief Osceola's gear, the, the, the pregame ceremony where they spike the, sta- the, the, the flaming spear at the 50-yard line. The Seminole tribe is, is, you know, it's interwoven into the culture of Florida State's campus there and so that that's why they haven't faced what the align i faced with at the university of illinois is because they've had that relationship so if, if to me if that's i'm a capitalist also if that's your brand i believe you ought to be given compensation for it so i don't think you should be using a tribe's logo or anything of that nature unless they sign off on it that's just the capitalist in me but then if they do why in the Sam Hill are a bunch of white progressives believing they know what is offensive more than the actual people who bear that mark, who bear that 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 caricature themselves? Because they're they're just so lately. dang compassionate, Steve. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think this is an issue that is as simple as the typical right-left Venn diagram. But... Um, I also think it's an issue that the left has a hard time winning the argument because for so long, like in the case of Eastern Michigan, I just cited, they've made utterly ridiculous ones. Well, earlier today, 
on the television show, we were talking about iconoclasm. Mm-hmm. That, yes. that, that's, again, what this is. You know, if this was people really coming together and really listening to each other and finding, you know, I, I think we can tweak how this goes and so we get all the, the good out of it and perhaps stop um, getting it, uh, twisting and bending into caricature. But that's not, this is, again, about progressive iconoclasm. Uh, they want to break the things of the West by constantly call, and one of the ways they do this is in calling us bigots as much as they can. So that's where this goes. I've seen a television, when it was about the Redskins, I saw a split screen where there was a Native American saying this Redskins, Redskins thing was a nothing burger to him. And he cited the high schools that are called the Redskins. He says, you're, and this egghead just told him, basically patted him on the head and said, yeah, well. You should know better, really. Yeah, get in, know your place. Mm -hmm. It's pathetic. There's no, there's never been a real conversation that's been had about this particular issue, which is why we have uh, uh, question begging like this. Right. I mean, I don't, that, so I, I don't know where would the Redskins go to get affirmation, a, a contractual acknowledgement and permission to use that because it's a generic branding of a Native American culture that's not unique to one or the other. And so opinions on this are going to be very divided, right? Um, what do you think, Aaron? I'm curious to get your take on this as a millennial who grew up in a, in a vastly different era, era when, where these sorts of things are concerned. Uh, all I know is after this podcast is done, I'm going to go culturally appropriate some Taco Johns into my mouth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I... I I, can't, I I come up because I'm I'm different than I think than I think most of my millennial brethren. Maybe uh, not that I'm special. I'm just so special. It's just I was raised differently. I, I listen to different things than most of my millennial brethren and sistren have, and so I come down on this is this is the height of p- hypocrisy. And I don't think it really is quite so much um, uh, more complicated than the simple left right Venn diagram type thing. Cause this is, they, they do, uh, progressives do to every minority what they try to do to conservatives. It's just with every minority and every, every rung of intersectionality, they do it out of compassion out of, uh, for when, when they fight conservatives, it's just out of, well, these guys are a tin can, can tomato can that we want to fight against, but really they, they have the same impact on every seeming, uh, minority or oppressed group that they say they fight for out of compassion and that ultimately is again with everything with progressivism is it's to gain power you see this with feminism the people who it sa- who it claims to help the most are ultimately the victims again with uh, the Native Americans they say they claim to uh, want to help them and they claim white guilt for wanting to help them and give them more power and more uh, supposed rights and more aid and everything but you see with uh, with things like this they try to be well they're not too smart by a half but they they out of the name of compassion they say no we will tell you how to think and how to feel because we're just so much more evolved and compassionate than you it happens with every single minority who they say they try to help and they really do think that they're helping but they're they're not whether or not it's overt or maybe implicit 
what they are doing is trying to gain power over as many different people groups as possible. You know, in our family, one of our daughters loved dressing up like an Indian. And her little name was uh, Little Wolf. And she would howl, and it was adorable. This was cultural appreciation, not appropriation. I think that's a good distinction. Which is which? Which, yes. Yeah. And... I don't think we always have to agree on that. But when the argument is don't have your kids wear Moana costumes, I, 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 if that's where you're at, I just want you to know. You're gonna, I'm a, take it from me. I'm a, I'm a conservative Christian. I know what it's like to lose a culture. You're going to lose the vast swaths of America, regardless of who they voted for last November with this garbage. You're just the the you're, now you now you've taken the fifteen percent of counties Hillary won, and you've essentially just said we want uh, Manhattan, Hollywood, um, New York. Why well, I already said Manhattan, so I'm in D.C. and you know the forty most liberal college campuses in their surrounding communities, and 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 that's our America. Now you, now you've taken Hillary's fifteen percent of counties and you've shivved them by at least half. You've reduced yourself all the more with this stuff. They're just, mo- and, and even if people thought you were right, they just have too much going on in their lives to care. They just, they can't get all, they're, they're not living in a subsidized bubble on a college campus with tenure. So they got to save their angst and their orneriness and their outrage for stuff that actually impacts their ability to feed their kids every week. Two more. Lawrence from Baltimore. I acknowledge the potential redundancy in asking the author of Rules for Patriots about his own book, but how do we get to a point where we can follow your rules for political warfare? How do we build a base to begin winning the local, state, and national representative positions, particularly for those who weren't college Republicans or predisposed to enter law school? Well, first of all, Lawrence, let me say this. If you weren't a college Republican and you never went to law school, the likelihood you will use these Ten Commandments and they will work for you are much higher. Here, here. Yes, they okay. are. Much higher. Much higher. Um, because they don't conflict with your instincts. They do conflict with the instincts of most college Republicans and most people who went to law school. But your question, Lawrence, is one of the issues with we had with my book, which is why we went through it again. Because my book was written as a template for conservatives to operate within the Republican Party. To shift it, to change it, to mold it. I don't believe we can do that anymore. That's why I'm not a Republican. That's why I went through an entire study with my own book. How much of this is still applicable? Um, there, there, there's an effort. I'm not sure how serious it is. But there's an effort being made that I was, I was more confident could have an impact before yesterday. And even though... I don't align up. Uh, my beliefs don't align with his on several important places. There was a there was an op, there there was an opportunity. Steve Bannon's war on the Republican Party could ultimately be successful, and the reason why is because the party in and of itself is in a vulnerable state, as evidenced by Trump's ability to win its nomination in the first place. And then win the presidency without really the party apparatus's assistance, frankly. Um, you have 
you have the, the most powerful tool in conservative media, Fox News, which has, <clears throat> for most of my career, been a mouthpiece for mainstream establishment type of Republicanism, is now a, is now a mouthpiece for Trumpism. So you, so you now have control of the propaganda arm, which we have, which the base has not for many years. And with Bannon's ties to the Mercers, there could be real money there. Then yesterday happened. And the patriarch of the Mercer family essentially divorced himself from Bannon publicly, sounded almost regretful in doing so, and then essentially tried to run over Milo Yiannopoulos with a Brinks truck, okay? He shanked him. He didn't just divorce him. He went and the horse rode in on on him. The reason that has me doubting, and now we find out one of his entities owes billions in back taxes, reportedly, to the government. Um, without, I think you need all the things I just mentioned. You need the angst of a base. You need a powerful platform to get your message out. We got the first two. There's no question the banks, the base is in revolt. That's not even debatable. You've got Fox News, which essentially is Trump's Russia today. So you got, you got the mouthpiece for that base. Now, though, you got to be able to write checks because for every Judge Roy Moore challenging the establishment with 100% name ID, a lot of these other candidates you're going to run won't have that. And that's where the money comes in. I go back to why did Mo Brooks get destroyed by McConnell's air war onslaught of attack ads and Judge Roy Moore did not? Well, what's the difference? Mo Brooks has, was only known by one congressional district in Alabama. People had voted statewide for Judge Roy Moore twice for Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So he was more insulated against it. He, I, think, I think Mo's district is like the Huntsville area. So me lived in, you know, Birmingham. Yeah, what, what do you, Mo Brooks? Hey, isn't that, what, isn't that Nick Saban's offensive coordinator? You don't know who the hell Mo Brooks is. But anybody that's been involved and active in Alabama politics the last 10 years, anybody, right or left, knows who Judge Roy Moore is. For better or for worse, you may hate his guts, you may love him, but you know who he is. First, the number one thing I've learned in politics, and I didn't want to believe this was true, I've just had to accept that it is. The number one weapon... And the number one step to winning is name ID. Gosh, that's pathetic. But most people just don't have time to be informed. If you can't build name ID, why didn't when you ran for legislature did you knock on every door? Kim, what were you trying to do? Introduce myself. Which so is called what? Was, name ID. Build a name ID. Yep. yep. If you don't have a name ID, you're doomed, man. Most people just look at a ballot I've known that guy I voted for him or her before bam we're done here thanks I'm in I'm out I did my civic duty go home watch the returns hope the guy I voted for won so I feel good about myself and then the next day I have no idea what they actually do once they're in office and we just do this again in two four and six years that's what the that is what the voting experience is for most of America I just laid it out not most of you listening to us but most of everybody else and it's going to take money to build name ID to consistently challenge these people. Mercers have that kind of money, but if, if Papa is 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 cashing out, 
then I'm not confident that that effort will work. And that effort is probably the only remaining opportunity that with any reasonable chance at success of truly denting the Republican Party. And this is why, Lawrence, for most of the last year and a half, I have spent more time on the need for another party than I have on tactics within the Republican Party. Because we don't have a platform, Lawrence, to do. the. That's why we went through this book. And what did we find? Right now, we don't have a platform to do several of these commandments right now, even if we tried. I hope that answers your question. I doubt, though, it's the answer you're looking for. Can I just add one thing? Sure. Totally agree on name ID. And it sounds laborious. Well, how, how do I do that? I mean, it's just so time... Uh, I, I don't have enough hours in the day. I can't... Knocking on doors, you know, just for... No. This culture is full of opportunities to go from zero to 60 in a second on name ID. Don't it, and you don't have to, it's not manufactured nonsense. I mean, real principled stands. One day, no one had any idea who Kim Davis was. Mm-hmm. And the next day they did because she took a stand. And that is you in this culture. Good point. It's going to come knocking on all of our doors very soon if it hasn't already. It has in my life in multiple ways. I mean, it, all of ours here. And in the television show today, we were talking about here and no further moments. It, the one is coming for you tomorrow. Will you take that stand? Your name ID will suddenly be there, and then you'll have an opportunity to say, God, what should I do with this? That's a good point. It's a very good And point. this is why, by the way, if you want, why do these guys run these ads? Hi, here's my family, and here's me on a tractor, and here's me uh, you know, doing relief work in Haiti. That They're building name ID. Number one thing people like to vote for Would you like to know what it is? I'll just tell you. I do this professionally. I see all the data that people spend six to seven figures, the real data, not the Gallup polls, which a lot of times, by the way, are accurate, but they're accurate like you know what the temperature of the ocean is when you put, you you know it's cold or warm when you put your feet in it. You don't know why it's cold or warm. That's what the data that I get access to will tell you. We all know what the number one factor is and what people vote for. Would you like to know? Likeability? Bam. Most people want to vote for somebody they like. Yeah. And it's, there's not even and there's not a close second by the way. It's not like it's not like the polls show that the the JD Power and Associates poll showed that the NFL anthem protests was people's number one grievance with the NFL, but like the the second and third factors were just like two or three points behind. There's like likability, space butter space butter space butter space bar. Everything else. I mean, it's number one with a bullet. It's I want to hold your hand. It's thriller. Okay? That, that's, that's what... I want to vote for somebody I like, and then there's every other factor. That's the other reason you go door-to-door, Kim. It is. So you'll know me, and then you'll like me. <laughs> and you'll think, well, I, I know I got this mailer that said you're some kind of Ron Paul zealot, but I met that Kimberly and she came to my door and I loved how she did her nails and she brought her pretty daughters that she educates herself and they were so well spoken. That's why you do that, isn't it? You do. That's why you do it. Well, plus, and okay. And then, of course, you educate them on your principles. If they care. You can do that if yeah. they care. <laughs> if they care. I, I'm, which leads us to the discussion of what has Steve been doing with his life on yes. If they care. Oh, if this, they care. This hurts. 
I know some of you get mad when we talk about Star Wars and sports and stuff. You know why we do that? Well, one of the reasons is we're interested in it, and it just helps to, uh, for us to decompress. You know what the other reason we do it is, though? It helps to humanize us. People like us more when they find out we don't just walk around talking hardcore politics and yeah. ideological principles all the time. You're laughing here, and it's true. It, it is. We do this we to make a, yeah. and because we know if you like us, what were you, what are you more likely to do? Listen, listen regularly. The amount of people who will listen for th- my, I wish this weren't true. I, I don't want it to be true. I want the inverse to be true. I want the amount of people listening for my theological and ideological precision to greatly outweigh the amount of people listening because they tried life cereal and they like it. But that's not the way it works. It's just not. And so, like I've said before, I have to live in the world as it is. Which is why we'll spend 10 minutes today on the TV show on CRTV.com talking about my Mariah Carey psychosis. That happened. Where you, <laughs> mo, where some of you are like, why are you wasting my time with this Planned Parenthood's killing 5,000 kids today? And I'm one of you, by the way. Okay? Yeah. But that's why this is called broadcast, not narrowcast. And the amount of people that just really want us to go to war full bent all the time, 24-7, is shrinking all the more. Well, Steve, you don't want to surrender to the culture. I'm not surrendering to it. I'm acknowledging it. If, if I don't give people, uh, at some point, pe- the culture will ask something from me I cannot give them. And I will say no. And I just did that last year. We had an election. I was never Trump. Remember that? You guys asked something of me. I said no. I'll tell you no when you ask something of me I can't give. But my job is when you ask something of me I can give, my job is to give it to you. That's my job. What you guys ask of me is, you know what, I, I don't want to be, I don't need to be told everything sucks all the time. All right? Then we'll make stuff lighter at times. We'll give you what you want. In the hopes that giving you what you want in exchange, you'll pay attention to more of the stuff we really want you to pay attention to. That's the reality. Final email from Dustin. There were two types of never Trump conservatives last year. Those who refused to vote for Trump because they thought they knew he was lying about his positions and would simply advance liberalism in the name of conservatism. And those who wouldn't vote for him because they hated Trump's articulated positions. It is the second type that clung to Rubio and Kasich when they were only helping Trump. Why? Because most of these actually rated Cruz lower than Trump because it was a given that he would have advanced the agenda he was promoting. These are the Republicans that hate conservatives more than Democrats do, as you have said. I would say that's definitely true of the entire Kasich group. I think the Rubio group was split. I think some of the Rubio people were like that. And I think some of the Rubio people are actually our people who just think, because it, remember what I just said about likability? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who just simply said, hey, I'm actually with you. I just don't think Ted Cruz is likable enough. Have you checked out the dimples on Marco Rubio? So while I think Cruz will try to give us 100% of what we want, I'm just not sure he can win. I think Rubio would give us 70% of what he wants and I, what we want, and I think he can win. That's the calculation they made. So I would not lump all the Rubio people into the same group as the Kasich people, all right? All the Kasich people deserve to be in this group. They're all woefully uninformed, or would be, or we would be better off if they were, okay? That's where all the Kasich, I'm comfortable with that, and I've prayed about it. I feel we're good about where I'm at right now, okay? <laughs> so anybody want to doubt me on the, on the Kasich uh, uh, labeling? We good there? I'm at the okay. I only know one too. person who voted for Kasich. And he fits the bill. So anybody- And he uh, does movie reviews uh, on the show. Uh, yes. <laughs> so everybody in the Kasich group, I agree with you, but I think the Rubio, and I don't know if it's 50-50, 60-40, but I think some of the Rubio group is what you're describing, Dustin. And then I think 
some of the Rubio group are just people who are with us. They just didn't think Ted Cruz was likable enough to win. So what's the point in exercising our ideology if we're going to lose? Okay. Is that fair, do you think? Yeah. Okay. All right. Now back to his email. These are the Republicans that hate conservatives more than the Democrats do, as you have said. They're the ones that are ashamed of the base. That's why they focus on Trump's personality flaws as they try to attach his flaws to his voters more than they focus on his actual policy flaws. That is so well said. I think this distinction is important in creating coalitions going forward and knowing who our allies are. As, quote-unquote, deplorable as the Bannonites may be, they may be more useful in pushing our candidates across the finish line than some of those fellow never-Trumpers were last year. I don't necessarily disagree with that to some extent. I mean, I would take that not as a general rule, but on a case-by-case basis. But I've never been opposed to a big tent. I just believe in the, I, I, I believe in a big tent which is, this is what I believe, I'm not changing for you. If, you. if you agree with enough of what I believe to support me, great, sign on. I'm not changing for you, but I promise you I will give you the parts of me you agree with, but I'm not changing the parts of me that you don't agree with to get you to sign on. I'm all for that. Big 10 is often defined though as believe nothing to appeal to as many people as possible and then sell out the people who believed in you the most once you get elected. That's how we define Big 10. Thoughts on that? For me, talk of coalitions are just um, yesterday's news. Uh, that we are in survival mode. We need to look for uh, quick strike opportunities that we hope can snowball into some level of critical mass. Um, I, that that's my takeaway from that. We just we are so broken that what no matter what your version of thinking about what a big tent is, it's just not applicable to the environment we live in uh, anymore. Think steps one through nine are about principle right now, and 10 is about uh, pragmatism because we've we had that inverse for so long and we got it so wrong. Uh, the, the, the tactics game right now, it, you can certainly think about, be prepared in that event to, so you can take advantage of situations. But this is the same thing I said about Kim Davis. You know, just be ready on matters of principle. You know, I've been disappointed by so many in the political realm. Um, it's very hard for me to get this idea of um, having some kind of a an agreement with people who I know will betray me. Right. I mean, I, I'm very nervous about that. Um, but you know, your idea of being ready, um, it's almost kind of like, you know, you're being asked to be a sniper. You're just being ready for that moment to target a specific thing. Yes. Yeah. Big, big tent does not mean, um, what a lot of people think it means. Um, big tent, it seems as the Republican party defines it means, all right, um, the corporatists get whatever the heck they want policy-wise, and the base, the people who actually vote for us, uh, get to write the platform and nothing else. See, this is Ooh, my fear. Nice. The, the coming elections, this, we just earlier this week we were talking about why I don't care about the coming election. If we talk like this, if this is where our heart is in the coming elections, I abandon all hope, ye who enter here. It, it is the old paradigm. We, we have got to break this thing 
and it's not going to happen. Kim nailed it by again talking about coalitions that are proven failures, that are guarantees of getting stabbed in the back, that are continuing to search out the approval of people who don't like us, who hate us, who believe in different things from us. I move on. I know a lot of you listening that voted for Trump did so because you've seen the power of the courts and you were scared to death about the kind of judges Hillary openly said she would nominate. In fact, today, the Senate, which has been slow playing too many of Trump's judicial nominees, actually finally approved five of them. Okay, just as we were recording this. I bring that up in the context of this conversation because of what you just said, Todd. I think next to the economy, judicial appointments was the number two issue in the exit polling last year, if memory serves. I think 26% of those who voted said that was their top issue. And, and I think Trump won those, issue, won those voters by like 18. It's a pretty resounding margin. So it could be argued that that issue had as much to do with him winning the presidency as any other did. So what does that have to do with what you just said, Todd? The, the, this party not keeping its promises... Because I know a lot of you listening to this, I, Trump is everything you guys say he is, but we're staving off the total and complete takeover of Hillary's acolytes of the judiciary, so I'll put up with that. For now. For now. And there's some truth to what you're saying, by the way. You're not, yeah. you're not, you're yeah. not in fantasy land. There's truth yeah. to that. Okay? Understand, though, this party's, they're not passing any tax relief this year. More and more that comes out about this plan, no way. All right? Wait, you mean the hidden 45%? Yeah, they're not passing. They, I don't think they can pass anything. If we go into this, they won't do anything unless those of you who, who voted for Trump pressure him to pressure them. They won't do anything. Because the truth is, most of them are, if they lose, they'll just go work on K Street for more money and they'll get on cable TV to say whatever they want like John Boehner is doing to Justin Amash and everybody else right now. Okay. If if they win, and, and so and if they or if they lose and the and, and they but they win their seats, then they're in the minority next year. Meaning the Republicans lose, but they retain theirs. They're in the minority, and they won't have to do anything. And they'll still get all the big checks from K Street anyway, because the Democrats will give them all the grifter money they want. If they don't do anything to save this country from what's happening to their health insurance and the amount of money they're not able to take home. I don't know what the odds are right now that the Republicans will lose the Senate. They'll be higher next November. High enough to change it? I don't know, because as Todd always points out, whoever's dumbest last loses. At this point, I mean, the, Republic the Democrats are running for governor in Virginia on Trump's voters, run people over on sidewalks, and tear down George Washington statues. I so it could be that the odds go from 2% to 3 It could be the odds go from 70 to 75 I don't know what the odds will be because of the pervasive stupidity of the Democratic Party. Really not its stupidity, but that it's just this out of touch with the average American. But that you cannot control. You cannot control the tactics of your opponents. You can control what your side does. If they do not pass meaningful legislation to cut taxes and or lessen health insurance and premiums, 
your odds of getting more of those judicial nominees you voted for Trump for a year from now are going down. I think we all agree on that. Where we may disagree is what the percentage is, right? But we all would agree they go down. That's why there's a lot at stake for people like you right now. That's why we fight for you, even though pretty much all of us here, to some degree, have given up systemic hope that anything good comes from the Republican Party as a long-term venture. Because it's not really about us, it's about you. So we'll fight for you, even when we're not all that optimistic that it will work. But it's also why I'm telling you the truth. If you don't pressure this president to pressure them, then the odds you'll see more of the judicial nominees you want to see are going to go down. Thanks to all of you who submitted your feedback here this week. Don't forget promo code DACE to watch our DACE group roundtable today on CRTV for Aaron, Todd, and last but not least, Kim. Have a great weekend. Until then, John 317. Steve Dace. I like it, you.